first time I noticed Olivier Schrauen's work was in MOM number 12. I had just become a contributor to MOM just a couple issues earlier. And then his story hit in the 12th issue. And it was like this totally unexpected, weird artifact from, from like another century or something. It was really funny, first of all. It was really, really funny. Super deadpan. The characters had these really ridiculous, bizarre expressions. And what I didn't realize until later was like, there's probably a little bit of like uh, making fun of like one of the, the sort of the fathers of, of um, comics, Rudolf Taufer. He sort of like is named as a kind of like a father of comics, basically, in the from the late 19th century. And he also wrote this crazy book on physiognomy, which is essentially how to tell what kind of type of human or person you are based on like your facial expression or your cranial shape and size. You know, like you were maybe a criminal, maybe you were prostitute or fine upstanding citizen or whatever, just by the shape of your skull and the shape of your... Phrenology? That's phrenology, but there's like physiognomy is like, it's kind of related to that a little bit. So phrenology, I think is like shape of the skull or like the bumps on your skull. But physiognomy is like, is related to that, but it's more from like the shape of your face and like the shape of your nose, the shape of your whatever. And it's interesting because he wrote the treatise, not kind of like seriously, or maybe he did it seriously. I don't know, but it wasn't sort of like to, for the general public, how to tell you know like a criminal by the the shape of their face but more mostly for cartoonists for other people who are drawers he kind of was like this is kind of like how you draw this kind of type of character this is how you draw this kind of type of character so anyway so this this comic that Schrauben did has all these random characters sitting around drawing and we kind of can't tell what they're drawing and uh, the the name of the story is hair types and then there's this character professor walking around and he kind of praises them or doesn't praise them and then we get a glimpse of some of the things that they're drawing. They're just these crazy, crazy drawings. And it's hard to explain this and by talking about it, but it's like one of the funniest comics I'd ever read. He's able to bottle lightning in comics, you know, like there's something really funny, really absurd and really joyful at the same time about his comics. That's where I first encountered him. And, uh, and I've been a fan ever since. Where did you find his work first? I never found his work until now, but I met him. I believe it was Comic Art Brooklyn. I don't know what year it was, but he was a guest there along with Julie Doucet. And we all went with the curator of Comic Art Brooklyn, Gabe Fowler. We all went to a show performed by Kim Gordon and that's crazy (laughs) and it was a very enchanted evening and Olivier was very charming and Julie Doucet was really sweet and Olivier did some sort of contortionist trick with his body which I can't remember what it was but he told me he had Marfan syndrome and what is that (laughs) we all watched Kim Gordon do this magnificent noise music and I thought this is one of the few happy days of my life (laughs) but I never really read his work until now no that sounds amazing that sounds exactly like one of his comics you know we were reading parallel lives for this episode and you know there's so much kind of like body morphology in there where bodies like change or shape shift or do all kinds of weird odd things sometimes augmented by machines, sometimes some kind of biological change or sometimes alien technology or something like that. 
and it's just funny that you mentioned, you know, the, the syndrome and, and that he was able to do weird contortionist thing with his body from, yes. from his person. Should we just look, look this up, Marfan syndrome? Sure, yeah. Marfan syndrome is an inherited disorder that affects connective tissue, the fibers that support and anchor your organs and other structures in your body. Symptoms. The signs and symptoms of Marfan syndrome vary greatly, even among the members of the same family. Marfan features may include tall, slender build, disproportionately long arms, legs and fingers, a breastbone that protrudes outward or dips inward. I think I remember him demonstrating that somehow. <laughs> a high arched palate and crowded teeth, heart murmurs, extreme nearsightedness, an abnormally curved spine and flat feet. He did not look unusually strange. He was actually rather handsome, if I remember. Well, that's interesting, yeah. There was theories that Barack Obama might have it. Oh, really? I didn't never heard that. That's interesting, yeah. Um, I mean, we, you know, we could dwell on <laughs> between biology and comics. <laughs> I found this book to be just amazing. I think it has restored my faith in it's brought comics up to the top as far as mediums go for me again. <laughs> well, this, you know, his work is definitely in my like pantheon of like maybe, I don't know, top 10 contemporary cartoonists. Like thematically, it's really rich in every, in every comic. There's, you know, kind of references to various other artists, other writers, other, uh, other mediums, other stories. And then at the same time, it's there's like a there's like a joyful underpinning to the whole thing. It, it just never it never feels boring. It never feels it feels like it's dense and yet spacious at the same time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're talking parallel lives, um, which is out from Fanographics Books from a couple of years ago, 2000, 2018. What story was did you connect with the most? My favorite story is the last one. The which, long story, yeah. Science fiction. Well, there's, it's all science fiction. Um, it's just so elaborate, this adventure story, and it's so romantic, and yet it's so dry and unromantic. It's so clinical and yet loving at the same time. And like you say, deadpan is a great way. It's like, it's long dead. It's so dead. <laughs> the death knell of deadpan. And also subtle. It's like so subtle. I think the word that comes to mind is imperceptible. Like it's so rich, like you said, but there's nothing self-advertising about it. Yeah, it's almost like self-undermining, but that makes it that much better. Yeah, I don't know. Like that, you know, that last story is just a brilliant. There's so much in there. There, you know, kind of gives you the the influences, you know, the the Charles Bukowski book that the characters find. Also mm -hmm. the Tarzan comics, both kind of uh, emerged in the narrative, sort of like merged into the narrative in some ways. Another like really obvious influence would be like Mobius, the characters, especially when they're flying around the mm -hmm. planet on their and their weird little plexiglass spaceship there's a number of comics that, where mobius has characters kind of dressed in a similar way mm -hmm. kind of floating around a, a lush verdant planet and, and a kind of spherical plexiglass type device and it you know has that feeling of like expansive adventure and travel but then it's it's done in this very different style than what mobius was doing so yeah there's it's the story is about 
uh, in the future, they're astronauts exploring the universe. They're just going around experiencing the far reaches of the universe. And But then they get sort of shipwrecked. And then they're sort of like, you can see the Tarzan influence by the way they're flying or like swinging through the trees. Mm-hmm. And then they meet these strange creatures. And then there's all this stuff going on between the two of them. Where is the Bukowski influence? I do not see that really. Yeah, the Bukowski shows up as like an actual book that the male character, because they're kind of, there's a man and a woman, or at least male or female, or male type and female type. <laughs> Let me try to explain the thing here is that in the future, they like their genders are sort of like erased. They have some kind of Metatron thing happening where they're, they're not really individuals at this point, but then this Metatron thing has broken down and now their biological hormone systems are kicking in and he's starting to grow hair on his face and chest and she's starting to grow little breasts and she's developing estrogen and him testosterone and so they're slowly starting to grow back their uh ancient primitive biological they're like regressing biologically or like regressing back to humanity and as we know it now versus kind of this future genderless more fluid kind of humanity yeah and there's like this remarkable lack of individualism but they also have this sort of dry distance or detachment from their own experiences and somehow they manage to have like this self-deprecating humor which doesn't quite i wouldn't imagine these people that really have that (laughs) that seems like a quirk of the author in a way but they sort of make fun of themselves they don't really get caught up in their own biology or their own drama that's happening anyway (laughs) it's a great story (laughs) you should just go read it Anyway, so the Bukowski influence is called out as, you know, in, in the sense that one of the characters is actually was frozen and Olivier Schrauen and all the characters in, in this book and all the stories are named after the author. Mm-hmm, the main characters. So the main character in the story was frozen in 200 years in the past and has been revived in the future, in this, in this future that we're in. And he does, but he doesn't really remember his past. There's a little storage box that came with him. And then has these older items in there. And one of those is a Charles Bukowski book. One of those is a Tarzan comic. And another one is a, is a little video device that has some video on it. Schwerin is very good at plot devices. He's, even though he's so subtle, he's very good at driving the story along. Yeah, yeah. I know it's very, it's very traditional in the sense that, you know, he's just kind of like, you know, it's very plot driven. One thing happens and another thing happens and another thing happens. There is like danger. There is like reflection. There is love adventure etc etc all with this confounding dryness though yeah (laughs) well the dryness you know like i i think of the dryness as a kind of and i don't know how deliberate it is but it it kind of reminds me of uh, when i think back to you know and again you know i i'm gonna bring up like communist era poland a lot of communist era societies had like a kind of a socialist realist way of conveying information mm-hmm. you know you had to speak as like comrade this and this and that mm-hmm. and, and had to kind of speak in a kind of a socialist speak to convey your fidelity to the party um, and this feels kind of that way where they're kind of speaking with this future dialect that that has been kind of where, where sexuality you know high emotions all those things have been kind of like drained away from their language. Mm-hmm. And as they're reverting back into their humanity, they're, they're using that language to try to understand what's happening to them. But mm-hmm. it's very dry because it's this, their language has been sort of drained of the, the emotional and 
the drama. Yeah, the emotion, the drama of of what they're experiencing. So they're trying to describe it through this drained language that doesn't have the expressions for those for those things. You know what I mean? That's kind of how I'm seeing it. Mm-hmm. That sounds about right. <laughs> the, the other thing that I wanted to kind of mention is like the, another book that kind of reminds me of. I don't know if you ever did. You ever read any Michelle Wallerback? Not the guy that wrote Submission. Submission, yes. Submission is another book. Yep. No, he's one of those people I just hear about all the time. <laughs> I really like him a lot, but he, this that story in particular reminds me of Possibility of an Island, which is which is a science fiction book that Michelle Wellbeck wrote. There's a similar plot here, and you know this this is a pretty conventional plot um, in the sense that you know a character wakes up in the future after being frozen for a while. There's been a lot of movies and a lot of books kind of written with with that plot device. It's not original in that sense, but it's handled very originally in his story. Um, in any case. In Huelbeck's story, there's something similar where like cloning is invented and you can kind of clone your mind into a clone that can kind of live on. So you you can kind of like extend your life, but not your body, but your mind through the clone. However, there is kind of a glitch and every new clone doesn't quite remember everything. So then the characters have to like keep these long journals (laughs) to kind of tell their future selves who they were and what they were and then what they were feeling and what they were and et cetera, et cetera. So like as these characters, seventh, eighth, ninth generation clones, they kind of know who they are through these diaries or whatever. They are kind of also their own characters, you know? So it's really kind of an interesting thing. It reminded me a lot of what was going on in Shrauven's story. Do you think Shrauven had read this book? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's handled very differently and Wellebeck is much more bitter as a as a writer. He's got like this acerbic bitterness and hatred for the for modernity. Whereas, you know, Shravan's stuff comes through as there's like this kind of joyful, all his future characters, they're kind of like us, but they're also very joyful. And they don't have the same hangups that we have about like changing into the, these future selves, you know? And even as they regress in this story, as they regress from their weird future selves into characters like us, there is none of this kind of neurotic, oh, am I, I'm changing to something I don't want to change into, you know? They're just kind of like going with the change and, and experience it in a joyful way. Mm-hmm. There's a very different kind of quality to the feeling of delight or almost like it's a party. I like that concept very much about keeping abreast of who you are by reading your own diary. Yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of other ways that those books intersect for me. In a weird way, Wellebeck is kind of like a departure. Like Wellebeck is this older writer who fears the future. The first book that kind of made him famous, atomized in the English edition, but I think in the American edition it's called Elementary Particles. In, in that story, there's this kind of like arc from hippiness through weird future where humanity kind of loses its individuality and becomes this kind of like psychic hive mind <laughs> in, in a weird way that's kind of where Shravan begins with some of these stories in, in parallel lives where there is already a kind of a weird human hive mind where human thoughts are traveling between um, between our minds and but then he kind of tries to rediscover present type humanity in, inside of that you know whereas like for Welbeck there's a fear of that whereas from Shravan's perspective there's kind of a joyful exploration of that yeah I also 
I like this one story, which I also read again, of the woman. She is a aspiring singer in the future and got a troll in her mind. <laughs> There's somebody in her mind inserting hateful thoughts. And it's just like this evening in which she's trying to figure out which of her ex-boyfriends is trolling her mind. He's narrating the mind as she goes along. He's telling this story. Eventually, she had to go home back to her tiny apartment, says the troll, narrating her mind. I love walking, she'd tell people. Everybody knew she just couldn't afford the tube. As she trended towards being overweight, the walking did her good. But walking wasn't without peril. At any moment, she could be harassed, assaulted, or even raped by any of the multitude of Lola's dwelling in the dark alleys of the city. So the, the narration... Well, it works as a narration of the story as well as the tormentor. So it's both the plot device and also the way that the story is structured. Yeah, I really like that one a lot. It, I love how it kind of resolves in a weird, instead of it being kind of like really overwrought, the confrontation between the, the troll and the character being trolled being, you know, some kind of dramatic moment. In the end, she's just like, stop it. <laughs> like just slaps him on the face. It's just like, stop trolling me. And then he goes, okay. <laughs> yes, I have to say, I didn't even get that until the second reading. I also have to say, this is going to be a spoiler alert in this case. So the character who is called Uli, which is based on Olivier's name, Uli was delighted to see that all of her ex-lovers had come to see her. Okay, this is the troll talking, remember? Yes. But what had in fact motivated them was a sinister desire to see her fail, to see the train go off the rails. Then Uli says, my friends, you've all showed up. There was Frapso, who thought Uli was a dummy. <laughs> there was Rolo, who used used the name Piglet when talking about her in private. Sasha found Uli's appearance repulsive. What's his face? Her current lover was getting ready to break up with her. There was Pappy, who simply thought Uli was a bitch. There was Amatino, who only feigned to be her BFF. There's Pepel, who once wished her a slow, cancerous death. And at last, Ciro, perhaps her only genuine friend. <laughs> Uli started by introducing a song that none of her guests were interested in. This song was written, she says, back in 1994. They did, however, want to hear her do an absolutely awful version of it. She launched into it with the conviction of a delusional idiot. And then, okay, so bearing her soul to a crowd of quote-unquote friends who felt nothing but contempt for her. They were all joined in a hate fest in which she was the unwitting dupe. Luckily, she was protected by her ignorance, her inability to comprehend what was going on, her absolute dumbness. And with each of these captions, we focus on one of the friends watching her. And on this caption where it says her absolute dumbness, is the character Ciro, who, who was, the troll. Uh, as the troll said, perhaps her only genuine friend. And then he's saying this out loud, her absolute dumbness. And that's when she realizes that Ciro is the one that is the troll. And then she slaps him and says, cut it out with the trolling already. And then she hears him say in her head, okay. And then he says it aloud, okay. And then she continues to sing. 
it is so quiet and I really missed it entirely because I was on autopilot when I was <laughs> throughout the throughout the story we think like oh my god she you know like this character is so like tormented by this it's almost like we think that this this character's thoughts at the same time you know like maybe the character character believes the troll but when we get to that point is like oh maybe this maybe she doesn't actually believe the troll at all and is just fairly well adjusted person that that is able to just kind of figure it out and stop the troll yeah she's hearing all this stuff and it's annoying rather than yeah yeah destructive because she is after all continuing to perform right when you get to that sort of weird scatting that she's doing that's kind of indicative of the the overall absurdness of a lot of the characters a lot of the things that they're doing the way they look the way they interact he's so good at just making that very weird absurdness real you know well portraying music in comics is often very uh problematic in a way that the best possible way sometimes it's either to make music really expressive visually or to completely make it flat so that it's sort of being mocked a little there are some artists that really have a sense of music that can give you the visual sense that music is happening but he's not doing this he's simply writing down the words like like it's so flat that you're sort of forced to go like you have to do the work of making this stuff come alive in your head which is a kind of like a writerly device like in this similar way like when you're reading a book you have to do the work of making it all alive in your head because it's just like one dimension of experience yeah, for sure. You know, I, I know what you mean. Like, it's, I mean, that's really the the theory of, of fiction, right? Like, there's, like, minimal amount of information in a way, and then you fill in a lot of the details. And sometimes with comics, the reverse needs to happen. And and Shravan does this really well because of, like, the kind of the deadpan narration. You almost, like, you have to fill those gaps with something else, you know? The ways to show music, like, splashes of color and also, or, like, patterning the words. There's a one cartoonist that does this really well because he's a musician. He'll have one character say a lyric and then the other character will say the next lyric. And there's something about the visual cadence of the um, image that almost makes you like experience the song, even sing it in your head. Like it does the work for you. Uh, who is this cartoonist? I don't know. Who is it? <laughs> ben. What is his name? He's a genius, a very different kind of genius than Shrawen. He's an Instagram cartoonist. I'm totally blanking, even though I had a relationship with him. <laughs> Water under the bridge. <laughs> Can't step into that river twice. <laughs> nope, it's gone. You have to consult the diary or your new self is already forgotten. So there was a few times when I, I like on rereading, there was like obvious things that I missed, either because I am not very literate at reading comics or he may be just a little too subtle i don't know which what like what things like what uh well that in itself the fact that she caught the the troll like oh, okay. I, yeah for some reason i'd read all that and i found it charming but somehow i hadn't like my brain didn't register it so the other you know the other thing that i kind of wanted to mention about this particular book is just the kind of the expressions on the characters' faces. Yes. There's this kind of absurdity to the, to the faces. Um, and th this is what reminded me of that sort of physiognomy text by Tupfer. He has all these drawings of these really kind of crazy criminals and, and whores and whatever. Mm -hmm. 
the way that these characters have this like slack jawed innocence on the cover they're kind of undifferentiated kind of almost like adult babies where where they're just kind of like open mouth it's hard to tell what you know whether it's a kind of uh just a an expression of astonishment or just kind of a dullard kind of yeah or like a yeah right or like a dullard like uncomprehension you know and and a lot of characters inside the book have this or like revert to it every now and then yeah it's kind of like this just slack jaw is a good way to put it and yet the main characters most of the characters are very sharp but they're kind of buffoonish look at page 90 for a second speaking of expression on the upper left page Uh the character sees this monstrous panda bear arthropod creature we're back in the in the adventure story by the way yes yes the, the final adventure story we're kind of jumping around a lot he's like he's screaming but it just looks like he's kind of posing a scream. Like the Schwarin does not even attempt to convey true terror, but rather what terror looks like, like physically. No, I, I see what you mean. And yeah, I, I think that, that kind of goes along with this idea of these characters, you know, not really knowing how to react in a human way, you know, or like not understanding the kind of emotions and the kind of feelings that they're going through. And so so here's one where it's like fear they probably have never experienced fear in this way before so yeah that's the first time in the story that even though terrifying things have happened before this is the first time in the story that anyone's expressed fear yeah because even when their ship breaks up they have those weird prosthetic arms that can lower them down safely and this is the first time where they're really in danger physically like where they can be hurt Mm. It really conveys that idea of, okay, I'm afraid, but I've never screamed before. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because the hormones, the biological functions are kicking in. This is definitely one of my favorites of the last couple of years. You know, I don't know if you you had a chance to read the other book. I started to read the Arsene Sharon and I stopped when it said that I should wait two weeks. (laughs) Continuing. I also waited when I when I read this book a couple of years ago, um, I, I waited for two weeks and I found that device to be really, really good. Yeah, so I haven't gotten very far, but it definitely has that same deadpan feel to it. Yeah, there's, you know, there's kind of a larger story here and it also has, you know, adventure and and love and weird body horror, body terror, body absurdity happening here as well. And the, the device, the sort of the wait two weeks before reading the next chapter just made me think of watching TV, you know, where you wait a week before the next episode of a sitcom or, uh, or a month before the next episode of a you know, drama or something like that. It's an interesting way to kind of to, to think about storytelling and having to wait uh, a long time before the next one. I find myself, I don't know if you can do this, but I find myself unable to binge TV where, you know, where you watch multiple episodes in the same day. When I do that, I tend to focus on like finding all the plot holes that are happening in the in the story. I find like all the seams, all the ways that they that you don't notice if you're if you wait. Mm-hmm. You don't notice those things because you kind of forget some of those things, some some of those problems with the story. So when you watch it again, feels anew, feels refreshed, feels without problems. Whereas watching it one, one, you know, continuously, like I start experiencing like, oh, well, what happened to that character? Why is this happening? What You see the seams, so you can't really enjoy the whole. It's, it's harder for me to enjoy it. 
Whereas like the, with the blissful forgetting, it's a lot easier. And I, not that Shravan has the same problem. I, I find he very explicitly creates seams in his stories, I think a lot of times where you get to see the, how he sort of like artificially constructs the story. But having waited the prescribed period of time, it made me forget some of those seams. The first part of the story was a very much a kind of a magical memory that I got to return to when, when I kept reading the book. So memory plays the role. Like you can't, like he's actually like inserting a memory. Yeah. If you follow the advice, I think, you know, I mean, obviously if you have a different kind of memory, if you remember things, remember everything, maybe you have a different experience. But for me, the forgetting was actually part, part of the experience of the book. I'm the opposite. I can only watch a TV show if I binge it. <laughs> because otherwise I'll never come back to it and I kind of feel gross watching like a Netflix series so I just want to get it done with as quickly <laughs> as possible get it in and get it out like a long really long movie it's the same way I, I have to eat a whole pint of ice cream or no ice cream at all <laughs> <laughs> what else do we like about Schwarin? could go on like just the beginning of the Arsene Schwarman is a lot more psychological like I'm very surprised in the way that this character experiences his reality and that it's translated in the images like everything is impressionistic well, I think he's definitely playing with memory throughout the thing and occasionally you have like here's a story from the past or something and some of the characters are like faceless or have these very minimal features or something like that. And I think that's maybe intentional in a sense that we remember certain things. We remember moments or specific or like broad events, but maybe not the specific. Hey, there's a bunch of people dancing, but I don't know what all those people look like. Things like that. And, you know, I think he's sort of playing around with that a little bit. Yes, memory. Like the images are based on his impression. He's following a map. And then it's like he's walking on the map. The streets are just lines and the names of the places are printed in cursive on the actual streets. And that's one example. But there's one where they're talking about like beating the locals or something. This character is, he's talking to an old man on the ship and he says, when Lippin's stream of words meandered to the topic of the colony, he declared his deep love for the natives. They were wonderful and in fact, not all that different from Europeans. And that's where there's all these people standing there and they have no face just like you mentioned this is the characters imagining what this other character is describing you could picture them as curly-haired sunburned teenagers an eternally good-humored bunch athletic strong resourceful persistent and then we have this image of 1950s style teenagers doing a can-can with no faces, except one has a wide gappy kind of mouth smiling. One only needed to discipline them now and then, but and then there's an image of the character, the old man, beating these teenagers. Like spanking them over the spanking knee. Spanking them over his knee with their pants down with a cane. And then the narration continues. He darted his finger into the flesh of an invisible teenager and quote says, who spares the rod hates the child. So everything that's said goes into a sort of fantasy or imagery or memory or imagination. It's very, uh, it's rooted in the narration. And I like that, that it is narrated. This relies heavily on narration. Yeah. And also the, the tension 
between the narration and the images. Nothing is merely illustrated. Yeah, no, I, re I really like narration in comics. It is definitely underused. I, there was a, for a while kind of a trend to stay away from narration and just stick with sort of word balloons and kind of tell the story visually and have everything happen kind of in, in the moment. So, uh, the, you know, the captions were always, there was definitely a school of comics that sees captions as redundant. Yeah. And, and partly because in the old days, you would have comics where it's like the Hulk is picking up a rock. And there was a caption that says the Hulk is picking up a rock. It's like, and it's definitely, there's a, there's a kind of a redundancy that, that happens there. Caption would maybe add a little bit of color, like, you know, the Hulk is powerfully ripping a huge rock or whatever, and gives give a little bit of additional information. But the caption, I think, can give you um, a, an additional layer of meaning that is often maybe not missing, but I, I miss it in comics. And people like like Schraubin and someone like Dan Klaus, for example, really deploys the caption as the mental narrative. It's kind of the internal monologue of the character, which is something that often is missing in a lot of comics. And a lot of comics are very physical. It's almost like uh, watching an action movie or something. Yeah. You have this stuff happening. You've got some, some conversations. And that kind of internal monologue is gone, whereas... If you read a novel, that's almost entirely internal monologue of a lot of a lot of characters sometimes, and mm -hmm. that's something that I I miss a lot in comics, and not a lot of cartoonists do that. But I think Shrovin and people like Klaus and I think Chris Ware and a few others do this really really well. Linda Berry does it well. Yeah, Linda Berry is another good example. There's something about this our scene Shrovin story. So. They're colonizing this island or something. Everything he encounters is so disorienting. Like every single encounter becomes grotesque and becomes like some kind of play of fancy. It's very disorienting to read. It feels like this character is just like this idiot child. I, I don't, I, <laughs> I have to feel like, I just don't have any faith in this character. <laughs> I stopped reading it because I have to wait two weeks, but I have no faith in this character's competency. He just seems weak. <laughs> and I don't even mean weak in like an unmanly way, but weak in a vulnerable way. When they come to the island, he falls in love with their hostess. And then their hostess and his host, they get up to go swimming. The character I've seen is like stuck there in this in the table because he has wait, a ray of light had penetrated the foliage and shone upon grandpa. Grandpa being our scene because Olivier is describing it. If it were an x-ray, it might have revealed how his briefs were taped to his thighs and belly. His briefs are taped to his thighs and belly because he's worried about this kind of worm that could get in. It might have exposed how he developed an erection that would flatter a randy donkey. And so there's a picture of a donkey with a big erection sitting in a chair smoking a cigarette and he's watching these two people swimming. This is a grown man, but it's a sort of like predicament of being like a, in, a, in a classroom as a prepubescent boy or a pubescent boy. <laughs> Maybe this is ex the experience of men that, that is just like always on the brink of disaster. I don't know. But how can you go and like help to colonize an island if you can't even like spend an evening without getting stuck in your chair because you have a giant <laughs> erection? I mean, I think this, you know, this is commentary on, you know, he's Belgian, right? And uh, Belgium had a horrific experience in the Congo, you know, um, as, a, as a kind of colonizing power. And in a way, this is commentary on like Belgians going to this place that they had kind of really knew nothing about and, and mm. kind of acting a certain way, being in charge, but at the same time, not really understanding who they're in charge of, what they're in charge of, like what kind of forces they're unleashing and or, or trying to suppress both in, in themselves and in, in the natives. It, 
Um, you know, that's why, like, you know, when you were reading earlier about the natives being kind of, quote, disciplined, the character kind of imagines them as just being spanked, you know, and, and obviously the discipline under colonial rule is a lot harsher and a lot more. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, then this moment with at the swimming pool is also kind of a reflection of the tight morality of the Europeans from that era, the sort of the Victorian or, mm-hmm. or neo-Victorian kind of uptightness that's kind of being expressed by this idea of not wanting to get these diseases there's some kind of disease that that is there but at the same time it's also like oh you know i don't want to reveal my erection so you know it's like kind of goes both ways right the disease is maybe just an excuse to hem in some deeper baser emotions He's got like his underwear is all like taped down, like kind of weird corset head or down. yeah, or chesty belt or something. Yeah, like it's 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 hemming in. You know, it's 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 protecting him, but it's also like restraining him. Anyway, I don't understand why he chose to do a lot of images that he chose to do, but I bet you do. <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, I'm just guessing. You know, like I I'm. Uh, I don't know that I know any more than you do. I've only read the book once, the um, the Arsène Chauvin book. Uh, I, I really like this book a lot. And there is there is kind of that impressionistic uh, idea like that he's sort of describing this through the eyes of this hapless character who, who is kind of fish out of water. Like he doesn't quite know where he is, what all these things are. Like there's a moment, you know, I don't know if you've gotten to that point where the, the grandfather kind of shows him the plan for the utopian city. Oh, yes. I figure you would like that part. <laughs> uh, you know, I really like that. You know, it's all these geometric shapes, all these like kind of perfect geometries, but also arranged in this bizarre, you know, kind of melange of weird architectural forms. The, the drawing here reminds me a lot of um, Yuichi Yokoyama. I don't know if you saw Yuichi Yokoyama's work ever, this manga artist from Japan. But it's kind of these primal shapes, but kind of arranged in this chaotic mess, you know. And, you know, and, and you have to wonder, like, is that the grandfather's vision or is that Arsene kind of looking at it and just kind of can't understand what's going on. So he just imagines it as this crazy wonderland of shapes, you know, instead of some rational city that maybe the grandfather is trying to build. It's very confusing and fantastical in that way. It does seem like it's based on reality, but then to almost a science fiction mentality, as well as a futuristic. We're talking about the past here, but there's like this futuristic feel to it at the same time. Yeah, yeah you know the sort of the, the future of the past you know like the, the future that we we never we never really got the hauntology <laughs> yeah hauntological past future inside the present haunting us about you know where's our jetpacks there's a lot of similar themes in this story that he plays with in the parallel lives the big story in parallel lives it's just kind of set in a colonial environment in, in a way set in the past whereas the other story is set in the future and in both stories i think they kind of try to figure out what makes us human you know in one way they're trying to imagine a future that the characters in the parallel lives are trying to escape from or trying to understand as they as they get ripped from that future. Anyway, yeah, any other, other thoughts? I kind of want to just hear if you have any thoughts about the story called Cartoonify. That's in Parallel Lives, right? Yeah, that, I thought that was great. In a, in a way, that's maybe I'm just, again, over-intellectualized these things, but I read it as a, a little bit of video game world. A lot of us that played video games and, you know, I don't know if you ever did, but, you know, that's something that we experience is this kind of virtual reality. And in this story, that's kind of made real, like in a sense that if I remember correctly, there's a kind of implant or something. So he can kind of experience the world as if it was inside of a video game. But at the same time, the way Shravan plays it is like the video game world is kind of a cartoon world, right? It's 
the reality is more cartoonified. And in a way, video games are that way too. They're like simplified and cartoonified and bouncier, funnier, more absurd, more unreal. You have certain powers that you can jump and you can run around. You can do all kinds of things that you can't do in the real world. You know, these characters kind of like experience this. And then that, that sort of that feeling fades away. And then you, that I really like that last sequence in that story where... Yes, it becomes real. So the, you know, the cartoony face fades away and then you've got this kind of real, you know, almost like kind of middle-aged guy with long hair, balding. And the kind of like the, the cartoony funniness of that, like kind of fades away and you, you have a sort of a recognition of age and... And also the damage that he's incurred while he was doing cartoonified. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm.